0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and it is number six of the series entitled, Truly Furnished, particularly addressed to those who may be addicted to the ministry, young people possibly, who would value a little help in these times in which we live. I would like to read together, before we open up the subject again any further, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. The Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Now, there's no possibility in a meeting like this to attempt to say anything about that section. Every verse is a challenge. I just ask you to notice this that at the verse six it says to the praise of the glory of his grace. And at the end of verse um, uh, twelve, that we sh- or the beginning we should be to the praise of his glory, and at the end of verse fourteen unto the praise of his glory. Now a wink's as good as a nod to a blind horse. But those of us who have searched the scriptures we say. You see the little hint they are given to you, if you take it. This divides into three parts, ending up with the praise of his glory. And the first part is all to do with the will of the Father, not a word about sin or salvation. Predestination, election, making a will and setting a purpose. That is followed by the work of the Son, which is entirely to do with redemption and bringing the whole thing back. And the third is the seal and earnest of the Spirit. And in order to accommodate itself to our minds, to remember we've just invented the words the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. But that's merely superficial. You can reject those if you will. Well now, our subject is particularly referring, at this series, to those of you who have either undertaken or feel that you must undertake the teaching of the Scriptures, the preaching of the Gospel, and last week I asked you to consider one of the things you were sure to meet, an ecclesiastical objection about ordination. Now I'm not going into that again because we discussed it last time, particularly with reference to the Scriptures. Today I'm going to deal with another objection which you must face which you must face clearly, and that is the objection by the scientist. I want you to deal with this sympathetically too. I've got tremendous sympathy with a young person at school or college who comes to me and says, "I'm, I'm just reading a bit that I've got here. In the light of present evidence of the new astronomy and space research, the inconceivable immensity of space and the distance of the stars, the evidence of coal fields, of fossils, of strata of the earth, etc., I find it utterly impossible to believe the book of Genesis. Now, I haven't overstated that. You can go on. Now, you can airily dismiss it or you can sympathise with it. Now, I'm going to tell you that the first thing to remember is to say to those folks, a scientist worthy of the name weighs and measures most accurately and carefully the material with which he's dealing and he doesn't confuse things that differ. Now the objection that I have against all this is that the scientist has never read the Bible. Or you say, never read it? Well, it gives it a glance and airily dismisses it and sets everybody at loggerheads and all the time it never says a word about it like that. If you would have seventy-five seventy-five people living one after the other of my age that would reach right back to Genesis 1. Seventy-five people of my age, that's all. No wonder people have a difficulty to believe that if the Bible teaches that the whole heaven and earth, the universe, was created 6,000 years ago, roughly, oh, they say, it's utterly impossible. I say, surely, it's utterly impossible. If I go down to the south coast, and I look at a great cliff of chalk with interlaid strata of flints, and I scrape a little of that chalk and put it under a microscope, and I find that it is minute little animals that have lived and died, and there's millions of them, and there's a few hundred feet of them, and you tell me all that was deposited just 6,000 years ago. Well, you say you haven't got common sense. If I pick up a piece of coal and I discover the impress of a leaf in it, if I know that there are fossils in it, if I know that there used to be tigers raging, ranging about this country, and I don't know what, it's all just six thousand years ago. Well, you say, doesn't it say that? I say it surely doesn't say that. Do you know what we better do, friends? We better do what we always say we ought to do: open the book. I think it was Spurgeon said, "You don't need to defend a lion if he's in a cage. Open the cage." So we'll do it, shall we? Open the book and see what this book actually says that's put on the rack like this and torments the minds of these young students that the very foundation of the faith is destroyed. Because, honestly, this, friends, and we should have to deal with this a bit more carefully next time, but I'll give you a, a hint. Do you know the word, the name Adam, comes right in the very heart of Paul's epistle to the Romans? Do you know the name Adam comes in the genealogy of Christ, his birth certificate? Do you know the name Adam comes in 1 Corinthians 15 which is emphasising the resurrection and says if there be no resurrection from the dead we are all men most miserable. Well how can you say Adam is is a a person and a reality and Christ himself is called the second man and the last Adam if there was never a first one. You see, it's not merely you're setting aside the first chapter of Genesis you've taken the great lump out of the foundation and the whole thing will totter as it should. So, I think that's. we'll have a look at this. How does it start? Genesis 1. In the beginning. Oh, wait a minute, friends. Is that 6,000 years ago? Well, I don't know. As many billion years ago as it's necessary. I don't know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has phenomena about it that uh, every eye doesn't see. If you're reading the original instead of the English, you're met immediately with something that ought to start you thinking. There are just seven words here, just 14 syllables here, just 28 letters here, and three basic words in this are all multiples of seven. You say, oh, here we are. I can't help it, can I? I'm only telling you what's there. How good many people don't know this? that there are no figures in the Bible. They're all letters. Uh, the figures we use are modern. If you wanted to say one, you'd say "aleph" or Alpha. If you wanted to say two, you'd have to use Beth or Beta. So Ab, in the Hebrew language, is uh, made up of one and two, making three, you see. And if you put down Jesus in the Greek language and add it up, it comes to 888. Just in severe contrast to the number of the beast, 666. You see, it's all there. I'm only quoting what's there. I haven't invented it. So we've got, in this first verse, something that we say, hey, wait a minute. There's a little stamp on this, like you pick up a piece of jewellery. It's got the mark- hallmark on it. It's got the hallmark on it. Now that's all it says. In the beginning, wherever it was, we don't know when it was created. It didn't just happen. I don't think I've got a mind that can believe that it just happened. All the possibilities that must take place at an identical moment by chance are so great that it's an easier thing to believe creation than to believe just a fortuitous concourse of atoms. But that's another story. When well, we move to the next thing? Or there is one passage I do remember which I sometimes refer myself and sometimes to the one who objects. The 38th chapter of the book of Job, God breaks the silence of his sister. Job, were you there? When all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy when creation started, were you there? No. Was any member of the Royal Society there? No. I see. I see. All righty. Well now, the next thing is this. Uh, my challenge is that the scientist has cavalierly looked at this book and dismissed it like that. That is to say, he's got so little regard for truth that he never even at, at reads. You know, it's possible that quite a number of real earnest Christians have never read the second verse of Genesis in the sense of reading it. When I say reading it, that's to observe what it says, and how it says it. You know what are you talking about? Well, have you got the book open? Let's look, let's read this second verse, shall we? And Genesis 1. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Have a look at that. You're a scientist. You're going to observe everything, weigh and measure, and you're going to discern things that differ. And there's a possibility you're still looking at it, and you haven't seen anything. Shall I just ask you to look at the word was that comes twice in this verse? Look at it again, friends, will you? Is it dawning on you that the printer has gone out of his way for some reason to print the word in two different characters? Now, would a man with a Bible in front of him start diddling about with types if there wasn't some real reason? Do you know what the reason is? No. Oh, I see. We are beginning to sit up then. There's something here that the scientists have never bothered about. Well, why should he go to the trouble of printing the word was in two different types? Well, you say, I don't know. You tell me. Ah, good. Right. In the Hebrew language, there is the verb to be. I am, thou art, he is. It's spoken, but never written. You can, you can, you can speak and you can write and assume the verb to be all the time, and hardly anybody will notice whether you put it in or not. But when it is printed, out in full type, then it is not the verb to be. This word was is a part of the verb to become. I'll give you an illustration of it in the next page. Genesis 2, 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became... He wasn't until this moment, but he became a living soul. Or we have all sorts of uh, ways in which this is used, but there's one illustration. You can look up many if you wish. Again, before we deal with this second verse, look a little bit further down. Don't get bogged down by whether it was 24 hours, days or not for a minute. You just wait a minute over that. Verse 9, And God said, Let the waters... Under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. Would anybody say that that was creation? To let the dry land appear. You know, the dry land couldn't appear if it wasn't there before and it's not created here. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I mean there's a consistency. Millions of years ago he created the earth then sometime not very far distant back from us, there was one of those cataclysms that have left their mark on the earth's surface all over the world that was was one that had to do with God's purpose and not merely just one of the convulsions of nature. And the earth became covered with water. And then the moment came for the refashioning of this earth only a little while ago for a new type of man that had never existed before A man made in the image of God. See? It's all consistent. It doesn't, it doesn't say that there weren't man-like people on the earth millions of years before. They left their mark. But they were the vertebrate, they were the highest order of the animal world, and we've got no evidence that there's any, anything much more about them. And then the moment had come for God to break in. Now the thing that we haven't got very much in our mind, many of us, is that from first to last of the Bible story, there's a war on. There's a conflict on. And of course we can raise our objections and so on, but that won't alter the fact that we are here, now at this very moment, involved in a battle between good and evil, light and darkness, and it will go on to the end of the chapter. And it's personified in the book of Genesis by the serpent that brought about fall of man, And it's picked up again in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, and says that old or ancient serpent, which is the devil, that's New Testament, Satan, Old Testament. So it consistently says he's there all the time, whether you like it or whether you don't. Well, we come back to this verse too. The earth was. Well, my suggestion is that to make it intelligible to the English reader, the earth became wasn't created like that, because the words without form and void mean that they had no outside and no inside. It didn't create it like that. It became like that. Now there's a principle in Scripture, or two great principles. One we've stressed for 50 years, the other we're stressing now. One is, rightly divide the word of truth and don't mix up your dispensations. The other is, Words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing. Now, so far as I'm concerned, these words are indicted by the Spirit of God, for all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, Old Testament as well as New. Now I can say, oh, I'm not going to bother my head, Uh, I think it's ridiculous, I'm not going to bother any further. Right, you can shut out any light that might come. But supposing you say to me, um... Do these words without form and void come anywhere else? I say yes. And you've started on the way to learn what they mean by asking that question. They do come elsewhere. How many times? Twice. Will that, will that be too big a burden for you to look at those two passages? I hope you'll say, oh dear, yes, I must look at them because I realise it may throw light upon them. Shall we? Now, I'll tell you the Hebrew words, so that you can test me. I don't want you to take anything from me, except I trust you give me uh, credit for being honest in what I say. I may make a lot of mistakes. But the two words are tohu and bohu. They sound alike. Without form and void. And those two words only occur together in Jeremiah 4 and the prophet Isaiah, in the passage we'll turn to in a minute. Will you turn to Jeremiah chapter 4, and see whether Jeremiah, a prophet of God, is using these words without form and void to describe the way in which creation comes in, or whether he refers it to a judgment that fell. Now, Jeremiah 4. He says in verse 22, For my people is foolish, they have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. Now this good and evil coming into it. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. And the heavens, they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. Whatever you think about it, fierce anger can never describe an act of creation. This, without form and void, was a judgment that fell. Whether you like to believe God ever judges or not, is another matter. But taking the words as they stand so far as Jeremiah is concerned, without form and void, which most certainly looks back to Genesis 1 as its basis, was another repetition of the same thing in a smaller degree, that judgment fell as a consequence of some sin. Now we'll turn to the prophet Isaiah, because in the, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And this time, it is Isaiah chapter 34. Now, At the risk of overdoing it, I'm going to ask you to let me read the first half of Jeremiah 34. And I want you to come to a conclusion as to whether this is a context of creation or a context of the most severe judgment. You see? All right. Isaiah 34. Come near ye nations to hear, and hearken ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. Now, here's the words, for the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, he hath delivered them to the slaughter. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heaven shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their host shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and the falling fig tree from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, behold, it shall come down upon Idumea, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood, it is made fat with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Bosra, and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. For the moment I'm not concerned as to whether we like it or whether we don't, what our opinion of this may be. The one thing I'm asking you, the writer of this who wrote it, is going to use the two words without form and void. And it's utterly impossible for us to say that if it's in that context, it can refer to creation. It refers to judgment of the most severe kind. Now here they come, verse 11. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, they are birds which are reckoned unclean in the Mosaic law. And the owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. Do you know your Shakespeare? The raven himself is hoarse that, quote, croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. The raven. Where are these four unclean birds? They shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of Tohu and the stones of Bohu. The line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. So now we've got all the references in the Bible to the word, two words, without form and void. And the scientist who should collect all his material before he starts building his theory, he says, I've got three passages. Two of them, whether I like it or not, it doesn't matter. Two of them use the words without form and void in a context of utter judgment. Well, you say, if that's the case, and these men knew what they were talking about, that's a guide to me. Oh, you say to me, what judgment could fall? Oh, friends, there's a lot to be said yet. There's most extraordinary evidence in the scriptures that there was a fall of moral creatures that brought about judgment long before man was created. But that's another story. We're just saying it's not easy, not right, to sweep aside the book so cavalierly that yields so much the moment you give it a chance to speak for itself. If, of course, you say, I don't believe a word of it, that's all right, that's up to you, friends. But don't impose that upon the book. The book never commits itself that just within the space of a few generations ago the heavens and the earth were created. They were created in the beginning. And for some reason yet to be discovered, if needs be, they became without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now then, another feature. When you come to the last book in the Bible, the book of the Revelation, you have a wonderful balance. You have here a creation, heaven and earth. In the last chapters of the book of the Revelation, behold, I make new heavens and new earth. In the first chapters of the book of of Genesis, you have a forfeiture of the tree of life. In the last chapter of the book of Revelation, you have access and right to the tree of life. So you're beginning to get the thing all coming right round to a complete con- uh, conclusion. And, in that particular case, we have this um, um, a- this emphasis upon the, the beginning. Now, uh, when we speak about the word beginning, we think of time, don't we? Naturally so. But supposing it should be a little more than time, would you let me quote from Colossians chapter 1? The epistle to the Colossians chapter 1 says of Christ who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature for by him were all things created which are in heaven which are on earth visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created by him and for him And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the church, the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning of the new creation, which is connected with the church. Now, if you go to the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, you'll discover that he was the beginning of the past creation. Revelation, chapter 3. Verse 24, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And you see, it's one thing to say that in the beginning of time, God created. That's all we can understand when we start with Genesis. But by the time we've read the whole Bible right through, we should be a little bit more educated, wouldn't we, in the things of God. And we may be prepared to discover that the one we know as our Saviour was the one in whom all creation was incipient and vested, and he is revealed at last as the beginning of the creation of God. That's another story. But what I was going to say was this that in this book of the Revelation, chapter twenty, you read that I think we better turn to the book because of the terms that is used. Revelation twenty The Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, puts that word bottomless pit in Genesis 1 verse 2. Should we put it there? Genesis 1 verse 2, the bottomless pit. And the earth became without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the bottomless pit. Same word. Now then, This is where you get the balance of scripture. In the second reference in Revelation, he's put into that bottomless pit as a prison for a thousand years. What does he do when he's let out? Deceives the nations immediately. And that time it's finished. We go back to Genesis. There's the bottomless pit. There was a fall of angels and whatnot. Was Satan put in there? And then was he let out after man was created? And he immediately started deceiving man. He did it in in Revelation one, Genesis one. He does it all over again in Revelation twenty, and he's been doing it all the time. What is the consistency about the book? Well, of course, we come back to Genesis one and we say, "What was this written for?" You see, the superficial scientific critic, he won't believe the book of Genesis can possibly be true. Because Moses hasn't given you a survey of all the mode and material of creation. That is to say, that because it doesn't anticipate space travel and nuclear fission, it couldn't be true. What I say, they are going to demand of Moses that he should write all that's got to be revealed about creation, he might still be writing, poor man, I don't know. But wouldn't he lay himself open to the criticism of the self-same people if he used up the bulk of the Bible telling us all about the fabric of material creation and we were all dying in need of a Saviour? We should all be dead and buried before ever we got to redemption. No, he was writing. Primarily, not for you or me, but for a nation of slaves that had just been redeemed out of Egypt who were so steeped in idolatry that when Moses left them, even Aaron made a golden calf. And you want him to take his time all about astronomy and conchology and all the other He says, I've only got one theology I'm going to give you, and that's so cheery ology. So what's that? Salvation teaching. Just dismisses it quickly and gets on with the story. Now, for another moment or two, and that I must finished. What about the question of these days? Some say they can't possibly be days of 24 hours because um, there's no, no sense in it. Well, you say, supposing, supposing we say each one of these days is a million years. Well, then half a million years was pitch dark, and then the other half a million years was light. Well, they're all pitch dark again. Well, the whole thing would be all outdone every time every day came out, wouldn't it? Oh, that's not much good. Well, what constitutes a day and night? What do you say, so far as we are concerned, the revolution of the earth on its own axis and the relationship to the sun? I see. So in the fourth day, the uh, sun is put there to rule the day, and from that moment, of course, from that moment, it must be 24 hours, mustn't it? Day and night. Well, I mean, what do you do with the first day and the second day and the third day? By the time the sun's there, and you've got evening and morning, ooh, you say, well, now we're up against it. This is 24 hours, isn't it? Alright, let's come a bit further. It says, And God rested the seventh day, verse 2 of chapter 2, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. So God was tired, was he? Or you say, now don't be blasphemous. It says that the the Holy One neither slumbers nor sleeps, he's never weary. Well, why should he say he, he rested on the Sabbath day? Or later on, we read in the scriptures that different ones at different times have spoken about a rest that remaineth for the children of God. And Hebrews 4 pursues it until at last he says, it wasn't so in the case of Moses, it didn't come in the days of Joshua, it didn't come in the days of David. There remaineth yet a Sabbath keeping, a Sabbatismos, for the people of God. Future. And you say, yes, I know it's coming. The book of the Revelation says the thousand year reign of Christ will be the Sabbath. Well if that one thousand years is one day in God's work then the other six are six thousand years that we're getting perilously near or blessedly near to the end of God's working week. Foreshadowed. Now these, these six days don't tell you that God did everything that was necessary just in six days of 24 hours. It's just a survey and a quick survey. And here's one thing to ponder. The word which is translated, uh, created and made, the word made, I haven't time to turn to all the passages. I'll tell you a few of them. Numbers 14.11. Suppose we look at that as a sample. And the rest you'll take down or you'll listen to and you'll look up for yourself. Numbers 14.11. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? Signs showed. The other references are Judges 6.17, Psalm 68.17, Psalm 88.10. Now they'll be recorded on this tape and if you haven't written them down you will you can have them over and over again till you get them. Now look, this particular expression... Signs which I've showed them. That word showed is this word made. And it comes, all I think, about 19 times to show. And there are some who believe that it doesn't say that God created and made. That God created and showed to Moses in a series of six visions that occurred in six consecutive days. So will you see the sketch of the age that this now gives you? Draw a long line across a sheet of paper at the bottom. Now, at either end of that long line, put seven steps going in two opposite directions, you see? Like that. Now, put a little man there and a little man there at the foot of the steps. And a little, little man at one end is Moses and a little man at the other end is John. Now, we are go to John in the book of the Revelation. He's looking up a series of seven visions which occupy the bulk of the book of the Revelation to a creation that hadn't come then. And Moses is looking up a series of seven visions to a creation that was already past. In neither case does it commit God to occupy 24 hours to do the whole creation. It was shown to Moses in a series of visions that occupied that time. But the great importance is that this was foreshadowing That's the reason, a purpose of the ages. That's why it's six days and seven. And once we start that, you yourself can collect your evidences. We have six days, followed by seven. By the seventh, there's seven days. Then we move up in Israel's history, and we have a feast of weeks. God intended they should remember seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. And then we have seven months Because in Israel, the festival year practically occupies seven months and the rest of the months just mark time till you get round to the beginning of the year again. So we've got seven days, seven weeks, seven months. And then we have a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, God guaranteed the harvest would last over. So we have days, weeks, months, years. But then you get the Jubilee, which is seven times seven or 49. And the 50th year is a Jubilee. When everybody goes out free, all sins forgiven, all inheritance that was forfeited goes back again. And then, that's not, not, not nearly so, but you have Daniel's prophecy of 70 times 7. And then you get the 6,000 years with the 7,000 years as the Sabbath keeping and then a new creation and God all in all. So you see, how much we're we going to lose by just cavalierly throwing aside the book of Genesis because a scientist, who's never read it, just airily dis- dismisses it and says, no one in this scientific age can possibly believe the first chapter of Genesis. Mm. I think the very seriousness of the challenge makes it necessary that we should give it most careful and patient consideration. Well, now, next time we meet together, I want to take some of the serious consequences And I hope that you will come to the conclusion when we looked at them that if Genesis 1 isn't true, it doesn't matter what happens because I've got no gospel to preach. But I'll leave that to speak for itself when we meet together next time.